It is again a distinguished privilege and a high honor that we each have this evening to gather on an occasion such as this one, to do so in the tranquility and peacefulness of this Sunday afternoon, and yet to do so with a desire to, in fact, worship and magnify the name of the God of heaven. And it is for that purpose that we each have come together tonight. It perhaps would be well for me to at least make a brief statement of appreciation again to the Montrose congregation for your kind reception of my family and me today. It's been our delight to be with you. We do regret that our previous plans we had made many weeks back did not allow us to join you for lunch today. But by the comments of some of the men in the back, I understand there was a great bounty of food there, and I know you enjoyed that very, very much. We do look forward not only to tonight, but to the remainder of the week, and we certainly hope that you'll be able to come back and perhaps invite others to come and be with us. I hope that the lessons that we will be considering, those troubling compromises of the church, will not only be encouraging to all of us in our steadfast nature of the truth, but will also be informative and will help any who might be present, that they might too appreciate the grandness of this church which you and I love so dearly. It is with that in mind tonight that we'll continue that series of lessons. We again have been discussing and will continue to do so troubling compromises of the church. And this morning, as we looked at this two, two lessons that we considered, one of the first ones that we dealt with was relativism. Now, that may sound as if it is a rather fancy term, but I hope that we learn the idea is really pretty simple. Where many people think that you do what you want, I'll do what I want, God will be happy. And we learn that the Bible does not teach that in any way, be it the ancient eras of the Mosaic Age or the patriarchal or even in Christ. God means what He says and He says what He means. In the Bible study portion, we also looked at another troubling compromise, the age of the earth, in which many are happy to accept that the earth apparently is so old because they then like for science to, in fact, accord with the notion of the Bible. We learn God's Word will not permit that. God tells us in His Word that in fact the earth is not that old. Dated a little bit more than 6,000 years and that's about it. It is the case as we consider another lesson tonight. You might notice that these troubling compromises will lead us this evening to address head on the matter of denominationalism. It is a powerful thought and it is a very needed lesson it would seem to me. And it is with that thought in mind there at the bottom, I will ask you tonight to visit with me the topic, the subject, and the amazing force behind the modern day encroachment of denominationalism. I state it that way for a reason. A troubling compromise? Absolutely. As we shall learn over the course of the lesson this evening, it has become commonplace not only in big cities like New York or Chicago or other places. It's even making inroads into places where you and I live in Smith County, Jackson County, Putnam County and others to view the church as but one type body among many, all of which are just as good as another, in which so many think that there's really thus no significant difference between them. Tonight I would ask that you give some thought with me to that topic. And it seems like the best way to begin would be to define it just as we did this morning so that we're very clear regarding that of which we're speaking. Have you ever heard that word denomination 
And perhaps you'd like to know more thoroughly and more clearly, what does that word mean? I believe there are at least two commonplace usages of that word that will help us understand very clearly what is being stated when that word is used. Here's one example. Suppose you go into a bank and you perhaps have a check that you'd like to cash. And the teller person asks, in what denominations would you like that change? Perhaps you have a $100 check. You might want it in 20s. You might want it in 5s. You might want the change in 10s. You might even want it in 1s. We understand that when the teller person asks, or the banking individual, the word denomination simply means what kind of rank or value of money is being requested. Here's another example. Consider the various ways in which time can be measured. You and I can measure it in days, hours, minutes, seconds, weeks, months, years. And so sometimes a question might be asked, what is the denomination of time best suited to measure a certain allotment? Those two approaches are easily understood by us. And in fact, they harmonize well with this definition. The word denomination at its most basic level just means this. To give a name to something or to specify a value in a series of values. Notice again in that example of money, a 20 would be simply one specification or one recognized value in a list of other possible values. A 10, a 5, a 50, a 1, or even others. It is with those thoughts in mind. Let's now apply them to the matter of religion. No doubt many of us, perhaps all of us, have been faced with this question, what about denominations in terms of religion? You can now see what the question would involve. Is there a series of all recognized bodies in religion, all of which are equally valuable, all of which are appropriately right, and all of which would bear the marks of approval with regard to God? That would in essence be the question that's being asked. It is with that thought in mind, I would point you to some of those statistics near the bottom of that slide. In our country, our United States of America, there are at least 635 recognized Christian denominations. To say that differently, there are at least 635 organizations all who claim association to Christendom, who all claim to follow the same book, and yet all the while they practice different things, they worship in different ways, they teach different practices, they often have little fellowship one with another, and yet they're all recognized as denominations or specified values or members of one global body. Interesting, isn't it? at least 635. Now I say at least because that statistic is a bit dated. In fact, in the year 2001, according to the World Christian Encyclopedia, if you were to count the number worldwide, there were in excess of 33,000 Christian denominations. That almost takes your breath, doesn't it? 
to think that there are at least 33,000 and in fact the number by their estimation was increasing by 10 every year. That is nothing less than shocking. It is our focus then tonight to come before this matter and to notice this kind of thinking has begun to make its roadway into the church of Christ into your ranks and mine in which individuals think that all of these are equal. God recognizes all of them. He's pleased with all of them. And in fact, there are articles in which I have had the displeasure of reading that have even stated these are blessings. That it is God's approval not only to have them, but to give people their choice so they can pick the one they like the best and worship in the way that God would find pleasing. It is our burden tonight to look more carefully, more interestingly at that, and to ask this question. Is the church of Christ a denomination? Does it stand on equal footing with these 635 others, these 33,000 others? It is with that thought in mind that we'll move to the following consideration. And let me perhaps present it to you in this shocking way. I have tried to highlight some of those statistics that I think make the problem sound bad enough. But here even brings it closer to home. And when I say closer to home, I mean Nashville. I mean even in some congregations within perhaps a 50-mile radius of here. You'll notice that. The Christian church that was a recognized different body from the Church of Christ in 1906 that's a mere 104 years ago. You might well remember that not many years back, in fact, only four years ago, there was a great movement in which it was asserted, let's reunite. Let's all get back together. Let's enjoy fellowship again. We'll exchange preachers from the pulpits. Now, let's note carefully that when that division was recognized... They, of course, adopted mechanical instruments of music and worship and many other things, but they wanted to reunite with us. There was not the slightest statement of repentance. They weren't going to change anything that they did. They were not going to ask us to change anything we were doing. They just wanted us to enjoy fellowship again. Now, may we give some careful thought to this. They thus were asserting, we both are doing just what we should God's happy with each of us. Let's just, in fact, break down these walls of division. I'll shake your hand, you shake mine, and let's go on our merry way in fellowship. They were not going to admit anything wrong. Now, does that sound as if we could have harmony and fellowship in that light? Consider yet another. Many of the Christian universities and colleges around our country have lectureships, they have speakers who openly endorse the very matter we have been discussing tonight. They have individuals who they welcome. They embrace them. They encourage them. These very individuals are teaching things that make the Church of Christ a denomination. It is with that thought in mind that I would point you then to notice that this mindset is not foreign even to our area in Smith County, Jackson County, Putnam County, yea, even others. We must be very mindful and we must be very concerted in our efforts not only to understand this, 
but in fact to be solidly grounded in what the Scripture teaches concerning it. It will be with that thought in mind that I would invite you to begin looking with me at these considerations. If you have your Bible, please be turning with me to several passages that we're going to arrive at in just a moment. Matthew 16 will be one of them. But let me openly make this statement. We have learned so far this evening that there are many who will assert that all of these denominations, in which again that word means one value among many, one recognized element among many others, all of which are of equal value. That's what the word denomination means. Many think the church of Christ is merely one of all the denominations. But I would ask that you and I retrace over the next few moments what the scriptures reveal about the church of Christ and to do so with an understanding that this is the infallible word of God. May we begin in the following way. Inasmuch as the word denomination identifies many of equal value among others, if the church of Christ is a denomination, that means we are but one among many religious bodies, all of which have the stamp of God's approval. But if we find that the church of Christ is no denomination, my friends, she stands amazingly unique. Wonderfully and marvelously set, in her position as the central figure and body in the revelation of God's will. To do that, let's sketch a bit about the church's establishment. As you and I begin in Genesis and proceed to read forward, we begin to notice that there, of course, was no church, as you and I would call it in the Old Testament. In fact, we come to passages like Matthew 3 verse 2 and Matthew 4 verse 17. Both of these verses read very similarly. And in them, first John the Baptist, and then our Savior Himself said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That directly tells us that at the time those statements were made, the church was not yet in its existence. The Lord said it's at hand. Thus, it was not going to be long apparently before it would be a reality, but at that time it had not yet been established. Wasn't it true that in the model prayer the Lord said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. If we stop at that point, the Lord prayed to his heavenly Father, the kingdom was yet to come. It was not yet in existence. It had not yet been established. That does bring us, doesn't it, to a passage like Matthew 16 verse 18. In the coast of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus, He had first asked His disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It was they who responded. Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But it was at that point Jesus to them said, But whom say ye that I am? Amazingly, beautifully, powerfully, Peter responded, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In response to that, Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It is to verse 18 that I would call our attention. The Son of God said, I will build my church. That's a future tense verb, isn't it? At the time the Lord made that statement, the church had not yet been established. But one more time, I would invite you to note with me that it would not be long. In Mark 9, verse number 1, again, this Lord made this statement. This now was much closer to the time of the, of the crucifixion. But on that occasion too, Jesus made this statement. Verily I say unto thee, that there be some of them which stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. If you and I thus were to cast that in a slightly different way, Jesus said, during the lifetime of some of you who are hearing me this day, you're going to see the kingdom in its establishment. That thus means that it was not long from the time Jesus made that statement until the church, the kingdom, would be a reality. Thus, we learn powerfully and interestingly that we have just studied a time period before the church became a reality. But there is no question that it did become a reality. Look at some of these after passages. In the events of Acts chapter 2, we see on that day that Peter and the eleven stood up and preached after the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they spoke with other tongues besides those in which it was their natural languages. In verse 36, as Peter concluded the lesson, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. And in the very next verse it says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter by inspiration said, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Three verses later it says, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And now to verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. We notice the church was now a reality. Because day by day, God, the Savior I should say, was adding to it those that were being saved. We have thus noticed there was a time in which the church was not a reality yet, but now by the time Acts chapter 2 closes, it was a reality. We thus learned something amazing. Here is the birthday of the church. Any organization on earth, that cannot trace its origin to that day, the day described in the second chapter of Acts, it is not the church of our Lord, period. It may be a well-meaning religious body. It may consist of a group of people who are earnest and sincere, but it is not the church if it cannot trace its origin to that day. Notice also this, if you would. In Colossians 1.13, we notice that Paul, in addressing the church in, the church in Colossae, said, and I would ask you to note the powerful language, we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That preposition into describes a change of venue 
Those who once were out of the kingdom were now in it. There's no question, my friend. The kingdom became a reality. That kingdom was known as the church. Today, you and I are blessed to still appreciate it in all of its beauty and in all of its purity and in all of its power. But it is at that that point I would invite your attention to this fact. We have seen the church described in the New Testament. We have seen the fact of its power and the nature of its establishment. Question, where do we read about the establishment of denominations? Have we overlooked them? Where do we find them? We read about the churches of Christ in Romans 16, 16. We read about those churches that Paul established on the missionary journeys. We read about the church, seven churches of Asia in the Revelation. We read about the churches in Philippi, Colossae, the churches of Galatia, the church in Corinth. I'm still waiting. Where do we read about these various and sundry denominations with their names and their titles that are not seemingly found in this book. Isn't it a sobering thought to note? Their names are conspicuously absent. Where does one read about those Baptist congregations? The Episcopalian ones? What about the Anglican ones? The Methodists? It is not our desire to insult anyone. Our only question is, I have found the establishment of the church Jesus built. It's in Acts chapter 2. I do not seem to find, and neither do you anywhere in God's sacred text, the establishment of these other bodies. And yet, the world claims their equivalency to the one that Jesus established. Is it not fair then to take this a step further? And notice that the Son of God established His body, the church, but he did not establish any denomination. I would again point out, he said, I will build my church. That word is singular. He did not say, I will build my churches. That word in Greek is absolutely singular, as any person who is able to read that in Greek would tell us. It is to be noted in light of that fact that some of these thoughts characterize that church of which you and I read in the New Testament. Let's notice in passing some of its characteristics. First of all, we learn something mighty in Ephesians 4.4. In this marvelous platform of unity, Paul said, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. I would invite your attention to that opening statement. Paul wrote, there is one body. What does that mean? What is the body to which Paul referred? I think all of us are well aware of the fact that in the normal realm of biology, there is one head for one body. That's true for human beings and it's true for animals. In the normal scheme of things, there is one head for one body. But might we notice on this occasion, Paul was not giving a dissertation on biology. He was discussing religious truth. There is one spiritual body for one spiritual head. And that led him to write, there is one body. In fact, let's allow Paul to further discuss this point. In Colossians 1.18 he wrote, 
Speaking of Christ, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Paul, what then is the body? It's the church. So if the church and the body are one and the same, and if Paul wrote there is one body, then how many churches are there? There is but one. There is but one. This thus flies directly in the face of those statistics that we noted earlier. 635 at least in this country recognized in the annals of our nation. But yet this book says there's one. There is but one. And you and I need to appreciate so thoroughly and realize that as this idea of denominationalism begins to encroach upon the purity and the beauty of the church as she is presented in the New Testament, we can see that problems will result. Because if we compromise on that point, that means we compromise on the identity of the body of Christ. But yet notice something else. We notice furthermore that as we read in the New Testament, these members of this one body were privileged to wear one special name. There are but three passages in the New Testament that identify this special and this marvelous name that these individuals wore. May I invite your attention to Acts 11.26? As we note in the heart of this book, it says, And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. That's the first time in all the Bible we encounter that name. And they were called Christians. While we're at that, let's look at another from the book of Acts. In Acts 26, verse 28, As Paul, in all the boldness and courageousness that surrounded his character, he was, of course, appearing before Agrippa. And it was on that occasion that as Paul spoke the truth of God, wasn't it Agrippa who said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. It is significant that in what Paul preached, apparently he knew well then the thought of the Christianity, and it was Agrippa who stated the reality of that name Christian. One more time in 1 Peter 4.16, we notice, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. What name? The name Christian. Taking that verse then, we notice that it is that name that allows one to bring glory to God. If you and I thus augment that name or change it, we are not in a position to bring glory to God. For God said it's through that name that one is able to magnify, exalt, and glorify the grand name of God. Might we now give some thought? What then do you suppose is heaven's reaction to these hyphenated kinds of Christians that you and I encounter in our world today? A Methodist Christian, a Baptist Christian, an Episcopalian Christian, a Presbyterian Christian, and yea, that list could be extended far more. Again, it is not our desire to question the sincerity or to question the desire that may be in the heart of many an individual. Our question is this, what has God said about this? We've learned that there is one body and that those who are members thereof wear in privilege one name, the name Christian. Might I ask us to consider one more thing? 
this one body taught and defended one faith. That, in fact, is another hallmark thought and idea, isn't it? One faith, but you'll notice we learned earlier that these various organizations teach different things, they practice different things, they worship in different ways, they proclaim different plans of salvation, but yet the New Testament says there's one faith. That's found in Ephesians 4 verse 5. And it is on that occasion that Paul again wrote, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. That settles then how many faiths there are. If any person thus changes, adds to, subtracts from, augments, alters, or redefines in any way that faith which the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has revealed, it is no longer the faith. Consider this thought with me. In Jude verse 3, little one chapter book, second to the last book in the New Testament. Jude by inspiration wrote, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. Now I quoted that based on a rendering from the American Standard Translation, which is in fact closer to the original Greek as it was originally presented. And isn't it amazing Jude said, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. If that faith was once for all time delivered, that means there can be no changing what was originally delivered. And yet all of the denominations that are currently known on earth started less than 500 years ago. Think about that with me. They everyone started less than 500 years ago, and yet this book describes events 2,000 years ago. Jude said there would be no latter-day revelations. The faith was once for all time delivered. Martin Luther couldn't change it. John Wesley couldn't change it. Roger Williams couldn't change it. Yea, any number of others who labored in their efforts and as a result thereof the denominations began, they all came 1,500 years too late. They are not the body of our Savior. Perhaps one more thought. As you then ask this question with me, if we read in the Bible about one faith and one body, and if we read in here about one name, is it not the case that by following this, we can have today that special church they had then? We can have a congregation and churches that dwell in truth and in an approved character before God just as they did? And can we not have the same plan of salvation that they proclaimed as a part of that one faith? The question is self-evident. The answer is yes, because we have the pattern. May I suggest that if we teach today what they taught then, then we will have individuals who will become today what they became then. Simple New Testament Christians who worship as God has ordained, who in fact live as God has set forth, and who by that nature stand with His stamp of approval. Doesn't that then hastily bring us to this set of ideas in which we will take what we've learned earlier just one step further? As if what we've learned so far isn't strong enough, the Bible has even more things to say about this point. I would invite you to consider just a few of these passages. 
one of the questions that we might ask is this. Where are many of these problems coming from? Who is often the ones who actually raise them and who introduce them and who lead to such problems? It is sad to say that in many instances it comes from those actually within the body itself. I say that, of course, because that's what the New Testament teaches. And you and I have enough history and enough experience to state that yes, that's true. Quite often men, sometimes even women, who do not understand as thoroughly and as much of the Scriptures as they think they do, are willing to allow matters to be introduced things to be taught that are not true. And gradually over a period of months and a period of years, that given organization that was once the church moves slowly away from that pattern of truth and begins to do things that the Bible does not endorse, teaches things the Bible does not support. And bit by bit, it slides off into apostasy. That happened in the 1800s. When the restoration movement began, there was such great fervor and interest because you had a unity. Brethren and congregations taught the same thing in the same way with the same boldness and power. And then little by little, this group introduced instruments of music into the worship. This group began to support missionary societies. That group began to do something else and it wasn't long before the whole movement splintered. And you again had nothing but another set of denominations. Brethren, that's a tragedy. It was a sadness then and it still is. And may I suggest the same kinds of things can continue to develop and can continue to happen if we aren't aware of matters like this. In Acts 20, beginning in verse 28, Paul, in addressing the elders of the church in Ephesus, directly told them, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. But then, Paul went on to say, After my departure shall grievous wolves enter in from among you, not sparing the flock. Paul even said, From your own selves there are going to be people arise. They're going to be like ravening wolves, not sparing the flock. Have you ever noticed with me in verse 32, how were they to answer this charge? What could they do to prevent that from happening? Paul wrote, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, who is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. What could they do? What is it Paul said? I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Those elders needed to stick thoroughly, firmly, and unerringly from that Word that God had revealed. And if they would do that, they would not veer nor move aside from that truth of God. The same truth is still here today. If we will stick unerringly and uncompromisingly with this, we will not lapse into apostasy and we can help others not to do the same. What's more? You might also notice this rather potent passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It begins with such a thunderous statement. But even as there were false prophets also among the people, there shall be false teachers among you, 
who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. We'll pause at that point. Peter said, There were false prophets in the ancient days of old, but he said, There will be false teachers among you. Today you and I should thank God for sound and solid men like Larry who will stand in a pulpit and preach the boldness and the courageousness of God and do so without apology. All of us need our toes stepped on by God because wouldn't it be much better to know it now than to find it out on the day of judgment. We should be thankful for elders who will unerringly and uncompromisingly guide a congregation not willing to allow things to slip in because they care for your soul and mine. And they want us to, in fact, be that one faith and that one body that they read about in the New Testament. We need to be thankful for soundness where we find it and encourage it always in ourselves, our families, and to help our children come to know it too. Isn't it amazing that we notice in John 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus made this statement. It was probably with virtually a tear proverbially flowing down his cheek that on that night prior to his crucifixion, Jesus prayed for all of those that would be the believers on his cause. He said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for all of them which shall believe on me through their word, that, Father, they may be one, just as you and I are one. Jesus prayed the night before He was crucified that all of those that would believe on Him would be one. Can you imagine how He feels today with 635 different groups, this one teaching that, this one believing this, that one teaching something else, and all of them claiming to follow Him. And yet He prayed that they would be one. They would be unified. They would be together. They would be in unison in terms of their thinking and preaching. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, listen to how that unity is described. It is on that occasion that Paul, writing to that church in Corinth, said, Brethren, I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Four different ways in one verse... Paul said you need to be together. Same mind, same judgment, speak the same thing, no divisions. Question, could it possibly thus be approved in God's sight for the current religious mess that's going on? The answer to that's easy. We aren't all speaking the same thing. We aren't all, in fact, striving with the, under the banner of the same faith. And there certainly are divisions among us. That's so different from what the Lord prayed for. And it's so different than what Paul encouraged the Corinthians to appreciate. Is it not then to be noted, as we close that slide, and as we come near the close of our lesson, to notice that fellowship, fellowship is a very special and closely guarded matter in the New Testament. You and I cannot, with God's approval, extend a hand of fellowship to just anybody in the name of Christ. Passages like 2 John, verses 9-11, through 11, 
tell us we must not bid God speed to one who is not appreciative of the truth of God. For if we do so, we're just as condemned as He is. We notice in other passages like Romans 16, 17, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. We certainly must be insistent upon attempting to teach them. But he said, mark them and do not have fellowship with them. You and I thus must appreciate the matter of fellowship is exceedingly special. We cannot swap pulpits with those who do not appreciate one faith. We cannot extend a hand of unison as if there is no problem with what they believe and teach. We are not doing this because it is our choice. We do this because God has said this is the way it must be. And furthermore, might we notice, in Revelation 2, verses 20 to 23, to one of those churches, one of the seven churches of Asia, they were specifically reprimanded because they did not recognize how special fellowship was to be guarded. They chose to extend fellowship where God did not wish it to be. Tonight, as we have looked at a lesson entitled Encroaching Denominationalism, I hope that we have come to the point of appreciating perhaps better than we did when we came tonight just how wonderful and just how special the church is. It is the church of Christ. It is that body that teaches one faith. It is that singular body of Christ. And as such, it is the one spoken of in Romans 16, 16. Friend, don't you want to be a member of that one body? The one on which God shines His glory and the one that's able to bring glory to God. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's the statement of Ephesians 3, 21. Tonight, if you aren't a member of the church, may I ask you why? If you have reached the age of knowing right from wrong, and you know that Jesus died for you, you know that you are currently a sinner, and you know that tonight, if you die, you are lost. Don't remain in that state. Jesus died for you at Calvary that you might not remain in that state. He shed His blood for you. He took your place, paying the price for your sin. Won't you in love express your appreciation to Him by becoming a Christian? If we can assist you in that way tonight, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess those sins, as well as confess His name as the Son of God and be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in doing that, it would be our honor. If you have become a member of the body of Christ and had your sins washed away at some former time, but you have lost association with what that truth and what that name meant, if you have sinned in a public way and others know about that, come back to that first love. That church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 was told, Thou hast left thy first love. That may be true of you too. If you need to come back to that first love tonight, Jesus is waiting with open arms. He wants you to begin walking down this aisle. We'll pray with you and for you. And God has promised to forgive. If tonight we could assist you in either of those ways or for prayers of strength, we'd be honored to do that. If only you would allow us to do it by letting us know while together we stand and while we sing.